Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 27. Last week, I began the history of the Middle Kingdom, going into depth on the rulers that controlled the area when Abram, accompanied by his family, is thought to have journeyed to the region. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm continuing with the rulers from that prosperous period and covering the time between about 1914 and 1806 BC. So let's get started. So when I ended last week's episode, I was wrapping up with Sinuzaret I, who died around 1914 BC and was succeeded by his son, Aminuhet II. We're past the period where Abram traveled to the kingdom, stayed for an unknown period, and went back to Canaan. The next historical reference of significance is when Joseph is sold into Egyptian slavery, and the current theory is that he arrived in Egypt sometime in the 12th dynasty, maybe around 1900 BC, maybe a little bit later. So, instead of pressing the accelerator, I'm going to continue to cover the rulers of this dynasty for the next 500, maybe 600 years. Why? Well, this is probably the time when Joseph made his fateful forced journey, then his brothers followed by his entire family. The next 400 or so years, the Israelites were in the land, at first as welcomed guests, a visit that slowly, or maybe quickly, morphed into slavery. Then, of course, there are Moses and Aaron, the plagues, and the exodus. All of this is thought to have occurred during the Middle Kingdom and the Second Intermediate Period, and maybe have stretched a little into the New Kingdom. So with that, the history of Amenahet II. Amenahet was the third pharaoh of the Twelfth Dynasty of Ancient Egypt. He reigned for at least 35 years. But despite this, and that he was on the throne during a well-known period, his tenure is rather obscure as are his family members. Archaeological findings have yet to uncover his father's name, but it is assumed that his predecessor, the I, was also his father. At the same time, there was a nomarch named Amina Hat, who may have been one and the same. But on the nomarch's tomb, there is a contradictory inscription that may refer to the crown prince while his father was still ruling. It reads that the nomarch escorted the king's son, Amini, while they both were on an expedition to Nubia. And, based on this, it's assumed that the nomarch was indeed a different person than the later pharaoh, and that the later pharaoh was the son of the previous. There's also an academic debate if Aminahet served as co-regent with his father. Regardless, the transition from the previous to the new appears to have been peaceful, as many of the higher administrative officials retained their post. An uncovered fragment has provided insight into his tenure. It's known as the Annals of Aminahet II and was found at Memphis. This document records donations to temples and some political events. There's also a military expedition into Asia but don't think of this as their version of Marco Polo. Instead, think of Canaan, Arabia, and possibly Persia. 
The document also chronicled the destruction of two yet-to-be-found cities. Tributes from other kingdoms, those in both the Middle East and Kush, several mining expeditions, at least three to Sinai, and one to the Wadi Gazus, and another one in search of amethyst at the Wadi Al-Hudi. The Wadi Gazus is on the northwestern shore of the Red Sea, while the Wadi Al-Hudi is far upstream on the Nile. Aminahet constructed many monuments, temples, and other buildings at Heliopolis, Herakiopolis, Memphis, on the eastern portion of the delta, and even rebuilt a ruined temple at Hermopolis. There's also a very curious artifact. Well, really, there's more than one. Specifically, several boxes of silver objects found under the temple of Montu at Tod. And that, in and of itself, is not the surprising part. What is surprising is that many of these objects do not appear to have been made by Egyptian craftsmen, but instead seem to be from the Aegean region, so from what is today either Eastern Greece or Western Turkey. And these artifacts, of course, indicate contact between Egypt and the foreign civilizations from the region during the Middle Kingdom. Many members of Amenahet's court are known, but I'll spare you a recitation of their names and positions. And, given the time period and the administrative structure, you have to wonder if any of these were known to Joseph, or may have been the Israelite-turned-slave-turned-prisoner-turned-court official himself. This thought will hold true for the next century or so, especially since we don't really know when exactly he would have been in the region. Unlike the previous transition, it's fairly certain Amenahet II and his future successor, Sunuruset II, shared a brief co-regency, brief meaning around three years. As it would turn out, this is the only such arrangement that we are now relatively certain of occurring during the Middle Kingdom. Upon his death, Amenahet was interred in a pyramid located at Dashur. His tomb is now known as the White Pyramid, and is presently essentially a pile of rubble, owing to the millennia of stone thieves. It's called white due to the remains being primarily white limestone. As it turns out, and as I mentioned with other pharaohs buried in dilapidated pyramids, the poor conditions apparently tended to repel grave robbers. Inside was not only the tomb of the pharaoh, but also several of his relatives including his children. Many funerary fixtures were found, including wood coffins, alabaster perfume jars, and mummification urns. There were also many pieces of jewelry uncovered in the pyramid. After Amenahet II was Sunuraset II. Sunuraset reigned for 15 years between about 1897 and 1878 BC. Actually, I need to rephrase he may have reigned that long, as the actual length is highly debated. The Turin list claims 19 years, and researchers say it was anywhere from 8 to 19 years. We'll probably never know for certain. Sunuruset focused on infrastructural and economic improvements. He had numerous irrigation canals, dikes, and drainage canals built, all with the goal of increasing the arable land in the region. One such area of development was at the Fayum Oasis. 
This is a region in Middle Egypt, about 50 miles or 80 kilometers southwest of Memphis, and it is the home to a decent amount of arable land, mostly due to Lake Mores, a natural body of water in an otherwise desolate desert. At one time, it was fresh water, but owing to its location and modern lack of drainage, its salinity has slowly increased. Throughout the 12th dynasty, the pharaohs continually developed the area, attempting to transform it into an agricultural, religious, and resort-like region. Sinuraset began a project to exploit the marshy region's natural resources for hunting and fishing, a project that would be continued by his successors. Essentially, he and his successors developed an irrigation system with a dike and a network of canals which drained water from the lake. Land was reclaimed that was then transformed into agricultural land. Why would he do this? Well, quite simply, to increase the food output. And what did the Egyptians of the time grow? Staples such as wheat and barley, as well as industrial crops like flax and papyrus. Increasing grain production. Seems like I've heard that somewhere before. And while we're on the subject, now is just as good of a time as any to talk about the administrative government of the Middle Kingdom. When the 11th dynasty reunified Egypt, it created a centralized administration, to the extent, meaning the size and scope, which had not been seen since the fall of the Old Kingdom. This was carried out by appointing people to positions which had not been used during the intermediate period. The highest ranking position was that of the vizier. He was essentially the chief minister for the king and took care of the empire's day-to-day -day business. And accomplishing the day-to-day -day activities was no easy feat. Sometimes it was too much for a single person to handle, so it would often be split into two positions, a vizier of the north and another of the south. But it's unclear how often the split occurred and how often it was consolidated. Sinuraset I had two simultaneous viziers, but this wasn't the only position. Other positions were adopted from the provincial form of government used by the 11th dynasty, before the reunification of Egypt that occurred at the beginning of the Middle Kingdom. These positions included the overseer of sealed goods, think of this person as the treasurer, and the overseer of the estate, meaning the king's chief steward. There was also the scribe of the royal documents, probably meaning the king's personal scribe, and many, many other positions. This basic form of administration was present throughout most of the Middle Kingdom, but there may have been a more complex administrative structure under Sinuraset III. Inscriptions from his reign seem to show that Upper and Lower Egypt were divided into separate states and governed by separate administrations, aka two separate viziers. Administrative documents, along with private stele, show an explosion of new bureaucratic titles in the period, which probably indicate a large central government. Also at the time, the administration of the royal residence was moved into a separate department of the government. The military was controlled by a chief general. 
As for the structure of the provincial government at the time, and by provincial I mean the Noms, changes were afoot too. When the 11th dynasty came to power, it was necessary to subdue the power of the Nomarchs so that Egypt could be reunified under a central government. Like I covered last week, Amenhotep the first started the process. He made the city, not the Nome, the center of the administration. And for the most part, only the mayors of the large cities would be permitted to use the title of Nomarch. The title, though, continued to be used until the reign of Sunuriset III, and the elaborate tombs of the Nomarchs demonstrated the power that they continued to wield. But these tombs pretty much disappeared during the reign of the third. There are a few potential explanations of this. The older view is that Sunuriset took direct action to quash the Nomarch families during his reign. More modernly, this view has shifted to a more benign approach. One theory is that Sunuriset II adopted a policy of educating the sons of Nomarchs in the capital and appointing them to government post. By doing this, many provincial families fragmented with no heir apparent. Also, it's been proposed that the families were not stripped of their titles and instead were absorbed into the pharaoh's administration of the country. Finally, I must note that while the large tombs of nomarchs disappeared at the end of the 12th dynasty, royal tombs followed the same fate not terribly long afterwards. And with that, back to Sunuriset II. He moved the capital from Dashur to El Lahun, about 60 miles or 100 kilometers southwest of Cairo. He would cement the move by building his funerary pyramid there. This city would remain the political capital for the 12th and 13th dynasties. The king established the first known workers' village in the nearby town of Sinusret Hotel. And this setup is worthy of description as it yields insight into the lives of the commoner, at least those in a somewhat urban setting. The town was rectangular and divided internally by a mud brick wall as large and strong as the exterior walls which surrounded the village. This interior wall separated about one third of the area of the town from the other, larger section, the commoners from the privileged. In the smaller area, the houses consisted of rows of back-to-back, side-by-side, single-room houses. The larger area was higher up the slope of the hill and benefited from whatever breeze was blowing. This larger section contained larger houses, most with several rooms. The largest houses were up to 25,000 square feet, or about 2,500 square meters. The smaller houses tended to be about 1,200 square feet, or 120 square meters. Flinders Petrie Yes, the British archaeologist is making yet another appearance, compared the town to a Welsh mining village, where the workers lived in terraces in the valley, while the mine owner and overseers lived in larger houses up a hill. And with that, back to Sunuriset. It's likely that he attempted to maintain good relationships with the various nomarchs, and this was to his benefit, as in the 12th dynasty, Many of these held almost as much wealth as the pharaoh himself. 
From a foreign policy perspective, Sinuraset's reign was one of relative peace and prosperity, with no recorded military campaigns. There was also a great deal of trade between Egypt, Canaan, Sinai, and other eastern neighbors. It appears that he did not allow his son and successor, Sinuraset III, to serve as his co-regent. There are a few pieces of evidence that may indicate otherwise, but if they do, they may show little more than a co-regency that lasted a few months. The second was buried in a mud-brick pyramid at El Lahun, near the junction of the Nile and the Fayum's major irrigation canal, known as the Bar Yusuf. And please note that while the structure was mud-brick, the exterior was clad in limestone. And the pharaoh was apparently concerned with two things. First, a trench was dug around the central core that was filled with stones to act as a sort of French drain. The limestone cladding stood in this drain, all of this indicating that Sanuraset II was concerned with water damage. And considering all the work he began reclaiming the Lake Maurice and the water rerouting projects that entailed, a French drain wouldn't be a huge surprise. The second curious concern of number two was an overabundance of caution about grave robbers. This became apparent when Flinders Petrie conducted the first comprehensive excavations of his pyramid. Petrie spent several unsuccessful months searching for the entrance into the pyramid on its north face. After all, every pyramid to date had an entrance on the north side. Sinura set the second went a different route, instead having built a narrow vertical entrance shaft under a princess's tomb located about 40 feet or just over 10 meters from the pyramid's southern face. The builders did build the usual small chapel on the north side, and the chapel typically concealed the entrance. Eventually, Petrie found the entrance, and when he did, it was evident that the long-dead pharaoh's efforts paid off. He found, in his words, a marvelous gold and inlaid royal ureus, end quote. The ureus was the serpent fixture typically attached to the pharaoh's royal headdress. The tomb of Princess Sitha Orionet, a daughter of Sunuraset II, was also discovered at a separate burial site. Several pieces of jewelry from her tomb, including a pair of necklaces, as well as a crown, were recovered. Another, smaller pyramid at the site and from the era revealed several pharaonic-era mummies in brightly painted wooden coffins near the Lahun Pyramid. So, after the second came Sinuraset III, who assumed the throne in 1878 BC. The third is known as a warrior king, and many consider him to have been the most powerful and influential ruler of the 12th dynasty. Inscriptions show that he frequently himself led troops into battle, but that's not all he did. In his sixth year, he redredged an old kingdom canal to allow navigation around the Nile's first cataract. But the main purpose wasn't for trade. He used the now navigable route to launch a series of brutal campaigns into Nubia on at least four different occasions, and these led to Egyptian victories. After this military success, 
Cinerasset built a series of massive river forts throughout the country to establish a formal boundary between his Egyptian conquest and unconquered regions of Nubia. The personnel manning these forts sent frequent reports to the capital, reports that detailed the movements and activities of the Nubian natives. Some of these reports have survived and show how closely the Egyptians monitored their southern border. The northern Nubian locals were not allowed north of the border by ship, nor could they enter by land with their flocks. They were permitted to travel to the local forts, but only for the purposes of trade. Sunuraset sent a final campaign into Nubia during his 19th year, but it returned prematurely due to an abnormally low Nile level, which did not allow his ships to pass. There is also a record of a campaign into Palestine, perhaps against Shechem, a city that is now located on the west bank of the Jordan River. This is the only direct reference to a military campaign against the location in Canaan in all of the Middle Kingdom. It's thought that his military successes allowed an era of peace and economic prosperity that led to a revival in craftsmanship, trade, and urban development. Within his borders, he is known for administrative reform that put more control in the hands of appointees of the central government, taking power from the regional authorities. He also divided the kingdom into three separate states, increasing from the two of his predecessor. Of course, there were the territories of the north and south, and the third was known as the head of the south, maybe the delta, or perhaps the area around Thebes. But the actual delineation has yet to be figured out. Apparently, each region was governed by a reporter, a second reporter, some type of council, along with a staff of minor officials and scribes. As you may have guessed, this increase in a centralized administrative government came at the expense of the nomarchs, this may indicate that they had finally been suppressed, but there is no direct evidence of this. Sunuraset III was also deified in his lifetime. There are a few documents that show his son Aminahet III became his co-regent in his father's 20th year, and his father may have reigned for another 19 or so years, which would have been a really long time to have a co-ruler, but then again, that's a risk you take if you appoint someone and then live much longer than expected. But the documents are confusing, and the father may have died soon after appointing his son. We don't really know. Sinuraset had a large, especially for the time, mud brick pyramid built for himself. Nearby was also a small mortuary temple and seven smaller pyramids for his seven queens. There was an underground gallery with further burial vaults for other royal women, maybe his sisters, mother, or daughters. Of course, next is Amenahet III, who took the throne around 1860 BC. His reign is considered to be the high point of the Middle Kingdom, at least in terms of economic prosperity. There were semi-permanent mining camps in Sinai, Counts that included houses, walls, and even local cemeteries. There are at least 25 separate references to mining expeditions to the Sinai, and four refer to expeditions in Wadi Hammamet, 
one of which had over 2,000 workers. There were also two expeditions for the mining of amethyst at Wadi El Hudi at the southern border of Egypt. At Mursa, which is on the Red Sea coast, a stele was discovered that mentioned an expedition to Punt. Aminahet reinforced his father's defenses in Nubia and continued to reclaim land in the Fayum region. In fact, when he was done, actually when Lake Moriz was completed by the third son, it could store about 13 billion cubic meters of flood water, and that's just over three cubic miles which is really hard to comprehend. But to put it in perspective, it's roughly three times the volume of the Sea of Galilee. Toward the end of his reign, he appointed his son Aminahet III as co-regent, but his daughter, Sobenefru, would later succeed the fourth as the last ruler of the 12th dynasty. Aminahet attempted to build his first pyramid at Dashur, but there were construction problems and it was abandoned. This pyramid is now referred to as the Black Pyramid due to its dark and decaying appearance as a mound of rubble. As for the construction problems, it began to sink under its own weight. Like the pseudo-legendary libraries at nearly every college campus, you know, the ones where the architects failed to take into account the weight of the books, for his pyramid, the builders hastily installed supporting beams and mud brick walls to stop the sinking, but it was not enough to stem the falling tide. Remember, anyone can break the law, but even pharaohs can't break the laws of gravity. He ended up building a different burial pyramid, much less drama there. The third reigned for 45 years, which is a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll wrap up the history of the Middle Kingdom. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. And if you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. <laughs>